This is episode number 253 with Associate Professor at University of California, San Diego, Bradley Wojtek. Welcome to the Super Data Science Podcast. My name is Kirill Eremenko, data science coach and lifestyle entrepreneur. And each week we bring you inspiring people and ideas to help you build your successful career in data science. Thanks for being here today. And now let's make the complex simple. This episode is brought to you by my very own book, Confident Data Skills. This is not your average data science book. This is a holistic view of data science with lots of practical applications. The whole five steps of the data science process are covered from asking the question to data preparation to analysis to visualization and presentation. Plus, you get career tips ranging from how to approach interviews, get mentors and master soft skills in the workplace. This book contains over 18 case studies of real-world applications of data science. It covers off algorithms such as random forest, k-nearest neighbors, naive bays, logistic regression, k-means clustering, Thompson sampling, and more. However, the best part is yet to come. The best part is that this book has absolutely zero code. So how can a data science book have zero code? Well, easy. We focus on the intuition behind the data science algorithms so you actually understand them, so you feel them through and the practical applications. You get plenty of case studies, plenty of examples of them being applied. And the code is something that you can pick up very easily once you understand how these things work. And the benefit of that is that you don't have to sit in front of a computer to read this book. You can read this book on a train, on a plane, on a park bench, in your bed before going to sleep. It's that simple, even though it covers very interesting and sometimes advanced topics at the same time. And check this out. I'm very proud to announce that with dozens of five-star reviews on Amazon and Goodreads, this book is even used at UCSD, University of California, San Diego, to teach one of their data science courses. So if you pick up confident data skills, you'll be in good company. So to sum up, if you're looking for an exciting and thought-provoking book on data science, you can get your copy of Confident Data Skills today on Amazon. It's a purple book, it's hard to miss, and once you get your copy on Amazon, make sure to head on over to www.confidentdataskills.com where you can redeem some additional bonuses and goodies just for buying the book. Make sure not to forget that step. It's absolutely free. It's included with your purchase of the book, but you do need to let us know that you bought it. So once again, the book is called Confident Data Skills and the website is confidentdataskills.com. Thanks for checking it out and I'm sure you'll enjoy. Welcome back to the Super Data Science Podcast, ladies and gentlemen. Super excited to have you back here on the show. Today we had an amazing guest, Bradley Wojtek, joining us for this episode. So what you need to know about Bradley is that he was the first data scientist and the person to kickstart data science at, wait for it, Uber. You heard it right, at the famous ride-sharing company Uber back when they were just starting out in 2013. So you'll hear a lot about that journey on this podcast and what Bradley learned and what lessons he can share with you today. 
Also, you will hear about what it's like to hire a team, how to build a data science team at a startup or at any company for that matter, what kind of challenges you will be faced with and how to overcome them. Uh, we'll talk about automation resisting data science skills. There's a lot of um, fear that data scientists might actually fall victim to the process of automation and might not be needed anymore. Well, in this podcast, you will find out what skills Bradley identifies that can help you to resist automation. And finally, we'll talk more about Bradley's work at uh, University of California, uh, San Diego, where he is an associate professor in the Department of Cognitive Science, the Neurosciences Graduate Program, and the Haligiolu Data Science Institute at UC San Diego. And this is super exciting because UC San Diego is actually spearheading the world of data science education and specifically uh, the HDSI or the Haligiolu Data Science Institute is advocating for data science to be recognized as a separate science. So we'll talk a lot about Bradley's work there and specifically you'll learn four very valuable philosophical points which you can make in any conversation to argue for data science being a separate field. So a very exciting podcast packed with lots of value. Can't wait for us to get started. And just before we do, I wanted to read out our fan of the week. And this one goes to Marine Jorian, and I hope I'm pronouncing the name correctly, uh, who said, a great podcast for future data scientists. A great podcast for future data scientists. This is a great podcast for those who want to pursue a career as a data scientist. I listen to every single episode of the series and it feels like I have gained a huge amount of experience from the interviews. Highly recommended. Thank you very much, Marine, for this uh, recommendation. And uh, for those of you who haven't yet rated this podcast, head on over to iTunes or your podcast app and leave us a review you would really appreciate it and I personally love reading your comments and on that note let's dive straight into it without further ado I bring to you Bradley Wojtek associate professor at UC San Diego welcome back to the super data science podcast ladies and gentlemen super excited to have you back here on the show because I've got a very, very cool person here with me today, Bradley Wojtek uh, from San Diego. Bradley, how are you going today? Uh, going okay. It's not too bad. I wish I was back in San Diego right now. It's uh, sunny in 75 or 24C, I guess, uh, at home, but I'm, I'm up in the Bay Area where it's rainy and cold right now. Yeah, yeah. you said you're helping out your parents, uh, your in-laws with the cleaning up after a flood. How's it going? Yeah. It's okay. We're doing all right. They're they're okay. Uh, they they were prepared for it. So we've been uh, scraping mud off of the walls and uh, uh, taking down all the walls and, and cleaning everything up and disinfecting everything. Uh, but hopefully everything will dry out and we can hang everything back up. Yeah, man. Not too, not too bad. Crazy. Does it flood off in there? Like this, uh, like once every 20 to 30 years. This wow. is one of the worst ones they've had in a long time. Wow. So that's why we're up here helping out. Yeah, well, hopefully, hopefully it goes well. It doesn't happen for a long time. <laughs> yeah. Bradley, super excited to have you on the show today. Been a huge fan of yours for a couple of years since, uh, I think, since the time when you were working for Uber or when you just uh, had just left Uber. Um, yeah, tell us a bit about your whole career. What's been happening since then, since you were at Uber? And, and in, in general, like, how did you get there in the first place? Like, where's your career taken? <sighs> Yeah, I've had a little bit of a strange career. Yeah, the the Uber stuff was uh, 
in some ways very short and in some ways felt very long. Um, so it's actually kind of a funny little small world sort of story that got me involved with Uber. Uh, so back in 2010, uh, I had just finished my PhD and I was supposed to move to um, Germany. Mm -hmm. I had a job offer to do uh, postdoctoral research in Germany, which is like the next stage. Uh, if you want to stay in academia in the sciences after you finish a PhD, you usually go on to do a postdoctoral uh, fellowship somewhere. Mm-hmm. And, uh, my wife and I went out there and I, I gave this talk and I met with the group and, uh, we decided we didn't want to move, uh, out of California all the way to Germany. And so I was kind of without a job. Uh, I had sort of managed to piece together a small job for a little bit, um, and was complaining to a good friend of mine about, you know, not really sure what I wanted to do next. Uh, I just done my PhD in neuroscience. I really love neuroscience research. And, uh, this friend of mine, it was uh, one of my closest friends from high school. I used to actually, uh, looking back on it, ironically, drive him to work every day mm-hmm. or to school every day. I, I was the one friend that had a like reliable car, enough to pick up everybody. And so I, I drove everybody to school every day in high school. And this guy ended up uh, dropping out of college as an undergrad, moving around. And he ended up in the Bay Area doing uh, software development uh, and ended up working at Uber. Um, back when Uber was still called Uber Cab and it was like a four-person startup. Wow. Uh, and I was complaining to him at a, uh, you know, I had some friends over for dinner and he's like, Hey, you kind of do like data stuff, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, for your neuroscience research, <laughs> uh, you know, you should, you should, uh, you should come check out this company that I just started working for this startup. And, uh, so, uh, he and I kept talking about it and, uh, I met with, uh, the CEO at the time of Uber, uh, Travis Kalanick and we had lunch and he was telling me about sort of the vision of the company and, uh, you know, I, I, I started talking to him about the data that they were collecting, right? They had the phones. Uh, and so they knew, you know, where the drivers were located and, uh, uh, you know, uh, where people were requesting rides from. And, uh, you know, I was like, well, it'd be pretty cool to see how people move around at the time. It was only in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. And so I was like, it'd be cool to see how people move around San Francisco, right? Like what are the, what are the areas that are most popular? Where are the users, uh, what times of day and that kind of stuff. And so, uh, you know, I started initially uh, back when it was a really small company. Uh, my job was essentially just to try and convince people that Uber was a company worth working for, that they had interesting data analytics problems. Because at the time, in 2011, every, the hottest things in the Bay were, uh, you know, obviously Google, Facebook, uh, Twitter was really taking off. Uh, so you had these companies that <laughs> like everybody wanted to work for. And so trying to convince people to be a data scientist at a, uh, a taxi know, company, <laughs> taxi company, right? Yeah, exactly. Uh, you know, uh, this was before ride sharing was even a phrase, right? It's yeah. like people were like, I don't, what do you care? This doesn't sound interesting at all. <laughs> uh, yeah. And so I, I, I had this mix of, uh, doing some data analytics, but doing a lot of public speaking at various tech events, trying to convince people, Uber had interesting data problems. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yeah, there were some really fun, interesting, uh, interesting times, but it was like, I was kind of had this great position though. My wife was pregnant with our first kid. And so I told them, okay, I was going to work for them full time until we had the baby. Uh, and then I was going to quit. Uh, I'd help them build out their data team and then I was going to leave. Um, and so I did, but we renegotiated so that I would stay on as a, basically a consultant, mm. um, and continue, continue, uh, you know, uh, uh, evangelizing at various tech things for Uber, talking about the data problems that they had and trying to help them hire data science teams. And, uh, uh, I did that off and on, 
until I finally started my own research lab at UC San Diego uh, in the neurosciences. And uh, at that point, I couldn't do it anymore. So I, I quit. Um, but it was a super interesting experience to get to meet all of these amazing data analysts in the Bay Area at the time when data science really just started becoming a thing. Uh, it was it was an amazing amazing experience. Wow, that's so cool! Like I can't believe I didn't I didn't know this. I can't believe I'm talking to the like virtually the grandfather of data science at Uber. That's insane. <laughs> <laughs> that is so cool, yeah. man. Uh, so, was the goal of these uh, conferences that you were attending and like uh, speeches you were doing was the goal to actually find data scientists for the Uber team? Yeah, that was a lot of, I mean, part of it was just to talk about how interesting some of the problems were, mm -hmm. right? Um, I can give you an example of one of the blog posts. Like one of the last things I had done for Uber was write this uh, public facing blog post that was an explanation about like the behind the scenes technical side of things, which was, um, you know, A-B testing is very common in a lot of industries, right? You have, uh, you know, whatever version of the product is right now is the A version of the product and you want to make some uh, perturbation to the design of that product. And so you, you create a B version of the product and you send that out to some sub selection of your users or clients. And then you see, is the B version performing better on whatever your KPIs, your key performance indices than your A version? If so, you're going to adopt it, right? The problem with Uber is, uh, you've got the A version of the product. Uh, and at the time we were talking about, um, how does the dispatch algorithm work? And so by that, I mean, like you open up the phone, uh, if you're a driver, uh, one of the drivers for the uh, company and you open up the phone uh, and you've got the app going and then you get a ping that says, hey, there's a, uh, somebody in need of a ride. When you as the rider open up uh, the app and request a car, which driver gets that ping first? Uh, and so how do you determine who that gets sent to first? Um, and it turns out there's obviously uh, you know, many different algorithms you could use to determine who would get that, uh, which driver would get notified first. Mm -hmm. uh, and the problem is if you want to make a change to that algorithm, you can't really A-B test it. And A-B testing, what you do is you send it out to some subset of your users uh, and all of those tests are independent. But if you make a change to the algorithm to some subset of your writers and drivers, that's going to influence what happens to the rest of the system going forward. Everything is interconnected, mm -hmm. right? Because the driver that would have gone to you now went to somebody else and you don't know if the change that you made any changes that you observe in the behavior of the system of whatever the KPIs are, are due to the fact of the change that you made or just some like really complicated nonlinear downstream effects. Um, and so one of the last things, one of the last projects I'd done for Uber was, uh, we, uh, I tried to develop a rudimentary, uh, like simulation system, which is you can create a, a agent based model, uh, for people a little bit more on the technical side where you simulate, uh, this the city of interest so let's say you're you know san francisco um which is you know seven by seven pretty small miles uh pretty small city relatively speaking in terms of geography and you know where all the roads are because you have you know open road maps and things like that and you know historically given uber's past data uh at any given moment in time what's the probability of somebody uh opening up the app and requesting a ride from one part of the city or the other part of the city or the other part of the city and at any given moment, where are drivers around the city and how do they move around the roads and things like that. And so uh, one of the last projects was building this simulation framework where you say, okay, we're going to now simulate like a million iterations of, uh, you know, the city going forward for a week uh, using dispatch algorithm A versus dispatch algorithm B and see in simulation uh, which one performs better. 
And then you do a bunch of different iterations of different kinds of dispatch algorithms simulated forward to help narrow down uh, like computational models of which algorithm might be best uh, for a city. And then once you have that, you can start to do the slower real world testing of uh, figuring out which algorithm is performing better in the real world. But that was a really fun project because I'd never done anything like that before. Um, and I had a lot of free reign uh, to do those kinds of uh, like out of the world sort of like projects of, you know, hey, I have an idea. What if we simulate San Francisco or New York or Chicago? <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, and that was super fun. I really enjoyed those kinds of projects. Wow, that's so cool. So basically in the simulation, uh, you replace that algorithm for all the users. Is that correct? Yeah. I mean, you, you know, we don't actually have any, you know, it's just, it's all statistical. You're just drawing from samples of what's the probability of anybody coming in the system here or here or here or mm-hmm. here at this time or this time or this time or this time, um, you know, because there's certain neighborhoods that are more popular than others. So, mm. uh, oh yeah, yeah. But uh, I mean like the AB test that you're running, like you want to replace algorithm A with algorithm B in the, in the simulation, you would do it not for a subset, but for the whole population. Yeah, exactly. Right. Because mm-hmm. the subpopul the subsets get like I said it, because of all of these sort of the way that everything is interconnected, uh, uh, it's really hard to figure out if your experiment is working the way they're intending, or if there's some like crazy nonlinear effects that you can't uh, predict mm-hmm. uh, downstream. So right? kind it's of like, like the, the chaos. <laughs> yeah, you can't isolate the effect. You you don't know what's gonna exactly. Know. Yeah, yeah, gotcha. Wow, very very cool. And uh, um, yeah, not many data scientists get like such free reign as you mentioned to uh, do crazy experimentations and would you say like right now probably almost anybody would say that uber is not a taxi company it's a data company right like that's that's their power that they have access to all this data and that they can uh, use it um when was oh, it, oh, yeah. <laughs> when was the tipping point when uh like for a company like uber when they realized that hey, you know, the value that we're creating is not just the infrastructure uh, and the partnerships with drivers and the connections we can create for riders, but actually the data that we can use. When was that tipping point and, and how did that like change the trajectory of the company or was it going there in that direction from the very start? I think it was a pretty data-driven company from the very start. Although one of the early things that we had, uh, we had done was try and figure out... Um, where, where to me it became obvious. I don't know, maybe it was obvious to everyone else already beforehand, but I mean, to me it became obvious when I was looking at uh, just what is the power gained in terms of uh, having historical knowledge about statistical trends of where people get rides to and from. Uh, like, you know, I don't know if people remember, but prior to ride sharing services, uh, you know, when uh, the only way to get from point A to point B was either drive yourself, uh, uh, public transportation, uh, or getting a cab or having a friend drive you getting a cab, meant a street hail. And if you're in a part of a city that doesn't have a street hail, what you would do is you'd call a taxi company ahead of time. And you had a bunch of taxi company phone numbers saved and you'd say, Hey, you know, tomorrow morning I need a, a ride to the airport. Uh, you know, could somebody pick me up at five in the morning? And you know, whether or not somebody shows up to your house at five in the morning to pick you up was uh, roll the dice, <laughs> right? It was not a guarantee. Um, and uh, it was, it was, it was frustrating, right? There was like, unless you were willing to chip, uh, chip in a huge amount of money to get like a black car service where 
they would absolutely guarantee that you could have somebody at a certain place at a certain time, but it'll cost like five times more. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was, it was, there was a lot of uncertainty in terms of trying to get, uh, get a ride from one place to another. Um, and so really like it became pretty obvious, like, uh, if you're collecting the data, uh, and you know, like on average on a Sunday morning, uh, at, you know, 5.00 AM, there are still people that want rides because, you know, people are maybe trying to get to the airport Sunday morning. Right. And then you can look at the data historically and you can say, well, look, there's still a demand, uh, uh at five in the morning on a Sunday. Uh, obviously there's going to be demand at like, you know, you see these peaks of demand at like Friday, Saturdays at like, I guess it'd be Saturday and Sunday, technically two in the morning in, in uh, at San Francisco when the bars closed, mm-hmm. right? There's huge amounts of demand at those times. So you can be pretty sure, you know, uh, you're going to need a lot of people on the system uh, willing to give rides at two in the morning. Uh, uh, but you also know approximately what parts of the city those drivers should be in, mm-hmm. right? Like uh, the distribution of bars and restaurants around a city is not uniformly distributed, Um and especially hotspots. Mm-hmm. And so uh, it became really early on that uh, obvious that you can get a huge amount of value. Uh, and that value comes from reducing uncertainty uh, of the user, right? When you can see that car coming to you uh, on the map uh, and you know that driver's you know name and license plate number uh, and it gives you an estimated time of arrival and you can see it all happening in real time, that's a huge bit of peace of mind if you are in a rush to get somewhere and you're worried about whether or not you're going to get to the airport on time and whether or not your driver is even going to show up at all right so um just having access to that kind of data is uh you know tremendously powerful Mm -hmm. and comforting uh you know it's like a it's a good it's a good case for users uh it it saves a lot of time uncertainty for you Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I haven't proselytized like this for uh, for this in a long time. I, I haven't done this in a really long time. Mm-hmm. Everything I talk about now is like my UCS uh, UC San Diego research. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's pretty funny to like put my old hat of talking about why data analysis and Uber is interesting. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, that, that is so fascinating, and um, I can't wait to get to the talking about UCSD. Like I, I'm sure, like that that's going to be a whole new conversation. So on. I just had. I wanted to ask you one more thing about uh, your time at Uber. What was yeah, the... Yeah, of course. No, I'm not trying to guide the conversation. It's just, it's funny for me to be doing this. I yeah, haven't done this in a long time. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. What would you say at Uber um, was was your biggest learning? Like you came in there with like a lot of experience in, in data and, um, you know, like a very um, developed background already, especially in academia. What, what would you say your biggest learning in terms of data science was during your time at Uber? Oh, you know what? That, oh, that's a good question. I actually didn't come in with a huge amount of data knowledge, which mm. is ironic. Um, I did a ton of learning on the job. I, I even, even to this day, I still tell people, right? Like I teach data science to undergraduates. I, I, I'm pretty, pretty well versed in uh, all of these topics. But even to this day, if I'm uh, talking to uh, very rarely, if I do any kind of consulting, I tell people, look, I, I, if you're looking for somebody who is a deep learning or machine learning or AI expert, I am not your person. Uh, if you're looking for an amazing program, uh, uh, software developer, uh, I am, I'm good. I'm just, I'm not, I'm not that I am not the best at these things. Um, like what I learned really well at Uber is trying to figure out how to, how to, and I guess this comes from the science side of my background too. How do you run an experiment, uh, and oftentimes a data-driven experiment to answer the questions that are 
important to you or your business? And how do you use the data to help guide you to those important questions in the first place? Right? Like, I feel like there's a very strong synthesis. There's like a synergetic uh, relationship between using the data to come to data-driven like principles or data-driven to do data-driven decision-making, but then circling back and then running actual experiments to test the data-driven hypotheses. And you keep iterating like that. And um, developing an experiment is non-trivial mm-hmm. and very hard um, because there are many other factors that could be hidden to you uh, that you are not accounting nor controlling for that may be influencing your results. Uh, so really understanding where do your data come from? Uh, what can your data tell you? How can you run an experiment to better test your hypotheses? And how can you then also use that to generate better data going forward? Uh, it's like that whole ecosystem is is really what I, I feel like I learned that was totally and completely new. Uh, that was outside of what I had really learned from my time doing a PhD. Hmm. Wow, that's such, that's such a cool way of looking at indeed an ecosystem of asking, uh, using data to make data decisions, but then also setting up the experiments to get more data and, uh, and so forth and so on. Um, very cool. What, what would you recommend to somebody who's, who's new to this concept? What would you say the biggest, the one biggest tip is in, in this whole process of the ecosystem? What's like one pitfall to avoid or one, one, um, useful hack that you, you've learned for yourself? <laughs> um, to, to be totally honest, I would say, uh, you know, I see this in the undergraduates that I teach um, uh, who, are, who are getting degrees in data science. I Don't focus just on the technical, mechanical, computational side of things, right? Like so many students want to learn uh, machine learning uh, to go into data science. And, uh, you know, to be totally honest, I feel like for most data science jobs out there, like... 80 to 90% of the machine learning that you're doing is going to be like some variant of a regression. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that's pretty straightforward, right? Like everybody gets into it because they want to do some like really cool, sophisticated, like AI, deep learning, machine learning stuff. Uh, but you'll, you'll, you'll carry, you'll be carried very far through like a good grounding in linear algebra and uh, an understanding of like the general linear model. Um, but what that means is I think that what people should be focusing time on is uh, to be totally honest, the social sciences too, mm-hmm. right? Uh, like programs like demography, uh, have been thinking for a very long time. How do you collect and analyze data from a huge number of people, right? Like you think about like the U S census, which is trying to collect information on all 300 million plus U S citizens, where do they live? Uh, and all this kind of stuff in, uh, how old are they, uh, in order to get, I mean, that's, that's how the U.S. democracy works. That's, that's how we determine how many congressional representatives every, every, uh, uh, every district gets, right? So the social sciences, I think, are under-leveraged amongst data scientists because they know how to run experiments uh, that are very large and complicated. And they also think about what are the data that we're collecting and how do we keep those data private and secure? Uh, and so not just the technical computational mathematical side of things, which is critical, obviously, but, you know, don't discount the fact of uh, where do our data come from? What are the processes that generate our data? Like the political and social processes, not just the technical processes. Uh, And then uh, like, how do we actually run experiments? And, you know, so maybe go talk to some of your colleagues over in 
you know, the social sciences. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Gotcha, gotcha. So, uh, would you say that's an important part or was important part of your job at Uber, not just like doing the analytics part of things, but actually talking to other members of the team and seeing, you know, like what insider knowledge they have about a certain process that's happening in the business? Yeah, I mean, that was, I feel like that was a pretty hard learned lesson for me in some ways early on at Uber. So Uber used to only be in San Francisco. And then there was a lot of conversation about where does Uber go next? Mm -hmm. Uh, What cities does Uber go into next? And, uh, you know, we would try and do some data driven decision making. I remember I was analyzing, um, uh, this is, you know, really early on, we're trying to figure out uh, what would be the best city for Uber to go into next? How do you, what, how do you define best? What do you mean by best? Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Like, uh, because best is really critical. The next cities that you go into, it's going to use resources from the company in order to spin up a new, uh, you know, a new team in whatever city you're going into. Uh, so is best the city that would give you the most, um, like worldwide advertising, like to, to help spread the word that Uber exists? Is it the one that would, uh, like, that the people in the city would most need, therefore, would catch on quickly? Like, how do you define best, right? And so that was that was a big question. And so the way that we approached it would be, um, I remember looking at, like, what is the problem that Uber is solving, right? And we used to call it the last mile problem, which is uh, the public transportation in the San Francisco Bay Area is pretty damn good. Uh, but it could get very frustrating for people to get to that, like, finish that last mile, mm. where you, like, might walk to a train station, get on the train and get to where you need to go. But then you've got another half mile to a mile to go from wherever that train gets off to your work or your home. Right. Um, and if it's a rainy day, not everybody wants to walk uphill in the rain through San Francisco for that last mile. Uh, the buses get super crowded. Right. Um, and so what we started to do was I started analyzing data, looking at, okay, well let's look at, uh, some of the major U S cities and figure out, um, like from, uh, various data sources, uh, like where are the parts of the city where most people live, right? Like show me the population density for any given city, show me the public transportation network for those cities and show me where like bars and restaurants and nightlife are in those cities, which cities have the biggest Delta between where those public transportation stops are and the major hubs of where people live and where people go to hang out. And like the cities that had the biggest average Delta between that would maybe be a good place to go. (laughs) Right. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. So, like not constraining yourself to like Uber didn't have data from other cities. So we didn't know which cities Uber would work best in, but we would try and figure out what are the problems that Uber solving and then what other data sources exist that we can gain access to that would help us try and come to a data driven decision, even though we don't have the data ourselves. But then it became very obvious as we started talking about this, we're like, Oh look, like New York city is a really good place. Uh, but it's ignoring the social aspect of New York city where people are like, you can't go into New York as an Uber you know how easy it is to get a cab in Manhattan? Mm-hmm. You just walk out on the street, raise your hand, and a cab will pull over, mm-hmm. right? And so nobody's going to want to use Uber and stand on the corner and wait for a random car to show up when you could just raise your hand and get a car. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then it got even more complicated because you would talk to, talk to some of your friends who are you know, people of color. You have you know, friends who are black that can't get a cab to stop for them at 2 in the morning mm-hmm. uh, you know, because – that's just the way that the societal structure is in the United States where you have some people who are racist and they're less likely to pull, uh, you know, cabbies might be less likely to pick up a black person at two in the morning than they are a white person. Mm-hmm. Right. So then you have all of these other complicated factors of like, what do you mean by best? Right. Um, like, is it trying to reduce, uh, this like, uh, racist tendency, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> is it, is it trying to solve this last mile problem? 
Mm-hmm. Is it trying to find the cities where you can, you know, X, Y, and Z, right? Like there's so many ways of defining best. And then it becomes really hard balancing problem mm-hmm. of how do you take in all of those factors into account? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so anyway, uh, like that, that, that was, that was an incredible learning experience because I'm like, Oh, I had never thought about how easy it is to get a cab. I haven't spent much time in New York city. Uh, like maybe this isn't the best place to try and go to next. Uh, maybe it is. I don't know. Right. Mm-hmm. Like how do you make these decisions? Um, yeah. So it's a, it's a, it's a balance. As you said, it's learning to, as a data scientist, learning to balance the insights that you can get from the data, but also leveraging a domain knowledge, you know, social, social, uh, and I don't know, other types of considerations that might yeah. not be so evident from the data. Exactly. Yep. Awesome. Fantastic. Well, thanks so much. That's uh, that a great excursion into the world of Uber. Uh, at this stage, I want to move away a little bit from Uber and switch gears, talk about your current work because uh, it's extremely exciting, if not even more exciting than uh, what you're doing back there. You're an associate professor at uh, UCSD, which is the University of California, San Diego. Um, so yeah, tell us a bit about that. You're in the Department of Cognitive Science and Neuroscience. Is that correct? Yeah, so uh, I'm in the Department of Cognitive Science, which is an eclectic department. Um, actually, uh, uh, Jeff Hinton, who just won the Turing Award, you know, very famous yes. uh, deep learning pioneer, uh, he was one of the early uh, members of the Cognitive Science Department at UC San Diego. He did his postdoctoral research there with uh, the founding members of the, of the department. Um, and the department sort of grew out of uh, you had this blend of psychology and neuroscience researchers in the 1980s that were uh, also sort of getting pretty adept at doing things like neural networks and realizing, you know, on the computer science and mathematics side of things, people working in neural networks were trying to answer very similar questions that some of these neuroscientists and psychologists were trying to answer. Uh, and so they got together uh, and uh, started incorporating a lot of different uh, pretty cool at the time, radical ideas uh, and they founded this department. And so I got hired in the cognitive science and, uh, I'm part of the neurosciences program here. My, my lab actually does mostly neuroscience research. Uh, so we try and figure out how do different parts of the brain talk to each other? How do the 86 billion brain cells or so that we have, uh, communicate in this really messy biological noisy environment in our brains? Um, and then I also help start this new, uh, that's the Haliji Olu Data Science Institute at UC San Diego, which we launched almost exactly one year ago, like one year and a couple weeks ago. Oh, uh, congrats. Yeah, yeah, it's really cool. Uh, what it's, was it to that's do? That's a huge institute. Yeah, so it's... Um, uh, when I started teaching at UC San Diego uh, in 2014, I started teaching a data science class, an introduction to data science, which was like the first intro to data science class at UCSD. Uh, and that class got crazy popular, mm-hmm. uh, by the third or fourth time that I ran that class run as a quarter system. So we do, you know, uh, three quarters of teaching per year by the third or fourth time I offered it, it was maxed out at like four or 500 students taking wow. that class. Um, and so by the time that started really growing, uh, we teamed up my department, cognitive science, uh, we teamed up with computer science and, uh, the department of math here. And we started, uh, putting together a undergraduate data science major. Um, and so that major launched a little over a year ago and that major has 550 undergrads enrolled Mm. already. It's like a top 10 major on campus. And once that major started coming together, 
uh, one of our uh, computer science uh, lecturers here on campus, this guy, Taner Haligiolu, uh, he teaches a couple of classes in the computer science department. He was a UCSD undergrad, um, an alum. He, uh, after he finished his undergrad, he went on and he ended up being uh, the first non-founding employee at Facebook. Mm, well. uh, and so he made a ton of money uh, uh, from that. And he donated $75 million to start this institute, which is the Haligioli Data Science Institute. And so that institute uh, runs the undergraduate data science major, but it's also a collection of faculty from different departments all over campus that are working together towards uh, basically making the argument that data science is an independent research field different from just computer science and just statistics. It's kind of interesting, like historically, uh, the first computer science department in the United States was at Purdue University. Mm -hmm. And you look back at some of the arguments that people were making about, uh, you know, starting this, uh, this computer science program. And, you know, people are like, we already have electrical engineering, uh, mathematical uh, and philosophical logic. Uh, and that's all computers are. Why mm -hmm. do we need a computer science? Computers aren't a science. They're a thing we use to do science. Yeah. And I feel that really parallels like data science right now. People are like, we don't need data science. We already have statistics and computer engineering. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, data is not something, it's not a science. It's something we collect for science. Mm -hmm. um, and so the Data Science Institute is actually taking a pretty strong stance that that is not the case, that data science is actually an independent, interesting uh, area of research in and of itself. Uh, and so we've got a huge number of professors already involved, ranging from like my department of, you know, cognitive science and uh, uh, neuroscience, computer scientists, uh, mathematicians, political scientists. We have the Institute for Practical Ethics uh, here, which is pretty involved. And that's a collection of people in the humanities and philosophy. Uh, so it's pretty broad reaching uh, institute. Uh, and there's a ton of really cool, really cool new stuff happening, even in just this first year. Wow, fantastic. Well, first of all, congratulations. It's, you know, it's been probably a crazy ride in this first year. Very, very exciting. And uh, I, I find that about San Diego, it's, it's kind of like, I really am excited about it. But at the same time, it's a mystery to me why, why data science is such like San Diego is such a hub for data science. So there's a reason why we run our uh, data science uh, conference, called data science go in San Diego, because it, there is so much going on in that space in the city you know just one of the examples the the way how fast how rapidly san diego is working towards becoming a a smart city you know with all this data-driven technology with sensors and um you know like a lot of automation uh, then another example is all the amazing students and uh, lectures and um courses that are happening around in the space of data science and applied data science san diego what would you say is there like any specific reason how how has it historically happened that san diego uh is such a hub for data science or maybe you have the perspective from at least ucsd like why is ucsd so focused on data science these days uh i think it kind of grows out of the history of of the university so uc san diego is a pretty young university right i think it's like uh, 1960 early 1960s is when it started right so mm -hmm. it doesn't quite have the same like historical legacy as uh some of the other you know uh like bigger tech universities right like mit and stanford have been around since the 1800s right um but ucsd grew out of uh uh partly the scripps institute for oceanography Mm. Uh, which is also a beautiful campus. <laughs> it's like right on the ocean. It's an amazing, uh, amazing place in, in uh, San Diego, in La Jolla, technically. Uh, but uh, 
you know, these oceanographers uh, have been working with huge amounts of data for a very, very long time. Um, uh, you know, it's like early climate science, right? Climate modeling, weather modeling, or there's like huge data repositories. Uh, and when UC San Diego got started, uh, it was, it became just this biotech uh, behemoth. Uh, so you have huge number of uh, biotech companies uh, that are headquartered in San Diego. And so you've got this one arm, which is, uh, you know, weather and climate modeling, Mm-hmm. which has been steeped in like really complex modeling and mathematics and data collection for a long time. And then you've got the biosciences, which are uh, also incredibly data rich, right? Just like, you know, one in one single person's genome is just an incredible amount of data generated, right? And yep. How do you begin analyzing and doing data mining uh, and all these kinds of things? And so I think part of it is, is that then the other part comes from, um, you know, a little bit of the technical legacy of the city also, right? Like you have companies like Qualcomm uh, headquartered there, Teradata just uh, moved their headquarters to San Diego. So you've got like not quite the same tech hub uh, as Silicon Valley, of course, but that mix of the biotech with the uh, like physical tech with the data driven uh, like research legacy that San Diego has uh, from Scripps Institute for Oceanography. Uh, you know, I think that that gives it a nice it's the right blend of topics uh, that lends itself, I think, to uh, the data sciences really nicely. Uh, and part of being a young university also makes it a little bit more flexible. I think uh, the leadership of the university is a little bit more willing to take chances on new endeavors like creating this big institute. So, yeah, it's 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 an interesting, interesting time and place to be. Uh, it, honestly, it kind of feels like I, I get a similar vibe as I got when I first moved to the Bay Area in 20 or 2004, I guess, where there is just like so many interesting things happening at the same time. And you can kind of feel something coming together. Uh, I get a little bit of that same vibe here uh, in 2019 in San Diego, which is pretty cool. It's it's nice to go through another round of this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I to- totally agree. And uh, I think, so I heard this interesting opinion and the credits go to Tristan Blake, who was also on the podcast before. Um, I'd love to get your thoughts on this, that uh, the difference between San Diego and San Francisco is, is, is that in San Francisco, like both amazing places, great, have lots of merits. There's uh, fantastic people in both areas, but the like... In terms of the setup, it's a slightly different in the sense that San Francisco uh, is more fintech, whereas in San Diego, it's more kind of applied tech, applied data science, whether, like you mentioned, uh, to different types of research, different areas of research, whether it's oceanography, whether it's uh, medical sciences, uh, and so on. And what that carries is that in fintech, it's more of a zero-sum game that in in the sense that a lot of these companies are competing with each other, whereas in uh, San Diego, and I felt this as well, that people are m- like very, go out of their way to help each other out, to, you know, share knowledge, share experiences, to, um, you know, there's, there's this f- sense of kind of camaraderie in terms of businesses moving forward and leveraging data science in that process. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I think there's like a different speed too, right? Like fintech and the startup culture, both of those are so fast Mm. and (laughs) biotech uh is slow Mm -hmm. right like you have to experiments take a long time Mm -hmm. uh regulations take a long time 
Uh, and similarly, like climate and weather modeling are also pretty slow, right? Like there's a different, there's a different pace. And so, um, I think coming, and also I think coming along with that, there's like a different pace of the culture of cities, right? Like, um, for example, it's not at all uncommon when I pull into the you know parking lot at UC San Diego in the morning, uh, to see like professors cars with, uh, you know, wetsuits draped over the <laughs> driver's side mirror. Right. Cause they're like, they went surfing before coming into work and you know, their suits are drying out and you know, they're like getting ready for the day. Uh, it's just like a totally different pace at which people, people operate. And, you know, maybe that's not as exciting. Like if you're, you know, young and going for like the fast paced thing, it's, it's a little bit slower, but, um, I think coming along with a little bit of that, like, let's take a step back and think about what it is that we're trying to solve. Uh, there's not a lot of positive lifestyle benefits that come along with that. Mm -hmm. And like, I just gave a talk at uh, strata in San Francisco. That's part of the reason why I'm up here. Mm -hmm. And, uh, the talk was about how do we educate undergraduate data scientists in ethics and data privacy? Uh, and, uh, I was mentioning, you know, I showed some of the course materials and I'm like, Hey, look, my entire course is up on GitHub, every lecture, uh, all the slides that I give here, are all the assignments that I give the students, uh, here's what the final projects look like. Here's the syllabus. Everything is open on GitHub. And a professor from another university came up to me afterward and they're like, I can't believe you just made everything open. And I'm like, wait, why wouldn't I? Mm. And they're like, well, it just takes so much time to put these courses together. Uh, and I was like, right. So why don't I just give that to somebody else and put it on GitHub? And if somebody sees an error in my, uh, you know, in my, uh, slides or something, then they could just, you know, do a pull request, right? Like, mm -hmm. like I don't, what's, what's the point of keeping this to myself? Right. So mm -hmm. there's, uh, there's this huge funky collaborative, uh, spirit that to me is surprising that it's not universal. Mm -hmm. Um, and what that leads to is these, like, so I'm the director of the undergraduate, uh, data science scholarship program here. Uh, and, uh, one of the student groups, uh, is proposing a collaboration. They're a dance major and, uh, they want to figure out how do people, how do dance troops learn how to dance? Like, how do they learn how to actually like coordinate their choreographed movements. And so they're working with, uh, like computer science lab and, uh, uh, like, um, what's the other group? Um, one of the computational neuroscience groups, uh, to do full motion body capture mm -hmm. of dancers learning these dance routines and then, uh, like analyzing that full motion body capture over time to figure out when do people learn how to synchronize with the music. Um, and like synchronize with each other. Right. And I'm like, that's a dance student. That's like uh, computer science doing uh, like full motion body capture stuff. And uh, some of the computational neuroscience people are also collecting like heart rate measures and things like that. Like that's a crazy collaboration. Mm -hmm. uh, I love that kind of thing. Right. Like those are, those are the kinds of things that you try and facilitate when you have like a really big collaborative environment, you just sort of step back and see what interesting ideas students and people here, like researchers can come up with. Right. Uh, and that only stems from that comfortability, comfort, <laughs> I mm -hmm. guess, with with collaboration. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> very, very interesting stuff, and I think I think that also very well resembles the general nature of data science. Like, if you look online, if you look at data scientists online, like they, they generally they help each other out, right? Like, there's a lot of yeah. sharing and stuff like that, and that's that's really cool that there's uh you know in san diego and in ucsd this the same thing is happening um yeah, you look at i mean you look at like oh sorry i was gonna no. say you look at like uh, like 
the foundational bits of software for data science, like modern data science or, you know, Python and R are, are just critical components. Right. Mm-hmm. And those are both open source programming. Languages, yeah. Right? Like, and so like the, uh, data science is inextricable from open source software development and these sort of open communities. I think, uh, you know, you just can't, you can't separate them. You just, uh, which all, for all of the good and all of the ill that that entails, right? Like there, it's a complicated thing, but, uh, I think modern data science, it, it really comes about because of these sorts of collaborations. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Definitely. Very, very exciting. Very excited for you that you're there. Um, I wanted to ask you, so you mentioned that one of the things that you guys are pushing forward is that data science is a separate field uh, of the study. Uh, What argument would you make? I think this would be interesting for our listeners to know when like they're having these discussions or debates with somebody, what's a good argument you would make to support that view? Um, I can make one that's on the technical side and one that's on like wearing my uh, sort of like the cognitive science uh, side of things. All right. Uh, So... Uh, on the cognitive science side of things, uh, I think the, the, like, what is data science and how is data science unique argument that I give mm-hmm. is, uh, almost a philosophical one of how is it that we can record numbers about the world around us and learn fundamental laws about the way that the universe works, right? Like you just like by, by observing the motion of the planets in the night sky and writing down where and when they are and how fast they travel and like all of the sort of secondary metrics that you can get from that of like, you know, acceleration and things like that. Uh, just through doing that observation and recording data points, you can infer fundamental laws of the universe. Mm -hmm. Like that's, that's the, like, that's the bigger philosophical side of things. Like how is it that just recording data from the world around us tells us something about the way that the world around us works, Mm -hmm. which I find fascinating. Cause then once you do that, you can then make predictions about the future. Like, and that's an amazing thing that writing numbers down allows you to predict the future. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> um, the more technical side of things is, um, okay. In computer science, there's this idea of like a uh, big O notation, computational complexity, right? Like what is the runtime of an algorithm? Uh, is it linear, right? Does the algorithm, uh, get, uh, you know, does it scale linearly, uh, in performance with the amount of data, uh, or number of steps, or does it, you know, scale logarithmically or what have you. Right. And I find that there is, uh, I I've been sort of toying around this idea, uh, of there are certain classes of data driven problems that, uh, as you add more data, your ability to predict gets uh, a little bit better, but there are other classes of problems where it seems like you add a little bit of data and your ability to predict gets a lot better. Mm-hmm. And I like to give the example of, um, like automatic machine translation. So translating languages, uh, has been like this holy grail uh, for linguistics <coughs> for like decades, uh, you know, and it, like these amazingly brilliant people, uh, you know, have been arguing for a very long time about like, what are the language universals? Are there certain aspects of language and grammar that are universal across all languages? Uh, and which ones are specific? Can we identify those universals and hard code them into computers? Uh, and can we then, like in order to do translation, do we have to do we have to encode a bunch of conditionals that are specific for each language? And you know, these arguments were happening, and they they continue to happen. But while all this is happening, Google comes along and they release Google Translate, and they're like, actually, you know, if you just throw deep learning at enough data, uh, you get a pretty good translation automatically. Uh, <laughs> you know, and if you use Google, like people make fun of Google Translate uh, because it makes some kind of silly errors sometimes. 
but it's pretty damn good. And it's kind of like magical when you look at like, I can pull out my phone and have a conversation with somebody who speaks not a bit of English and I speak not a bit of their language, but I can pull out my phone. They can talk into my phone. It'll translate it for me and vice versa. It's a little slow, but like that's the stuff out of sci-fi. But that didn't work until Google had huge amounts of data, right? Like they needed just enormous amounts of data to throw out the problem Mm -hmm. before it finally got to work. Um, And you look at some of these like computer vision and deep learning problems where it's like the best algorithms do, you know, like arbitrary language, like 95% accuracy. And then as we get exponentially more data, they get up to like 99% accuracy. And you're going to exponentially more data a couple years later and it's 99.2% accuracy, (laughs) right? Like there are certain problems that like you throw exponentially more data at them and you eke out just a little bit better performance. But there are other problems that you like throw, you know, uh, just a little bit more data and they do tremendously better. So I think about this idea of like uh, data complexity, like how much data do you need in order to come to an accurate, predictable, uh, accurate prediction uh, given the amount of like data and like what classes of problems are like linear data problems versus exponential data problems and things like that. Mm. Um and I guess like the final aspect, like what I think is like the art of data science that I find the most interesting is uh, uh, integrating heterogeneous data sets, right? So you think about like, imagine you're a, a, um, a data scientist working at uh, Facebook, I don't know, right? And, um, you know, you need to predict what's the probability that, you know, some user is going to click on any given ad, right? And that number, the output that you want is a number between zero and one, the probability that they're going to click on that ad what do you theoretically maybe have access to as a data scientist working there? You have access to like the freeform text that they write in their status updates, as well as when and from where they wrote those status updates and from what kind of device. Um, you also have access to maybe like their social network, right? Who are they friends with? How strong are each individual friend connection? Maybe they include a hyperlink in their uh, status updates, right? That Those hyperlinks are themselves graphs that have some information, right? So if I post a link to, I don't know, like, the New York times and my Facebook status updates, I'm more likely to post a link probably to like Washington post than I am to like, I don't know, Fox news or something. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you have like maybe access to their photos that you do computer vision on. And then you extract information about text information about what's in those photos, how many people. Right. So you have all of these different kinds of data. you got image data, freeform text data, uh, like social graph, you have some demographic information. How do you get all of those different kinds of data, uh, text image, uh, like geography, temporal data, uh, and come to a probability that they're going to click on an ad, right? Like those are very different kinds of data and figuring out how to statistically integrate them in some way to come to a probability of ad clicking is non-trivial. Uh, and that's not just a statistics problem, uh, in my opinion, and that's not just a computer science problem. It's sort of a new space of how do you integrate different kinds of data in order to do math, on them. And I find that to be, so those are like the big different kinds of domains, in my opinion, of what makes data science relatively unique. Mm, that's very cool. So just to sum up yeah, and correct me if like my understanding is wrong. So we've got three main pillars. Uh, the first pillar that you described was that it's phenomenal and philosophical actually that data, we can like observe the world, write down some data and then use that data to describe how the world works and in fact make predictions about the future. So this, this, when you think about it deeply, it's actually, it is um, a philosophical notion that it's not trivial that through just 
numbers we can extract all these insights about the world about the laws that govern it so that's exactly. so that's the philosophical component of this field um, the second pillar is the complexity of data that uh, you know how much data do you have how much data do you need for certain problems different problems require different amounts there so this is probably like like any science you know chemistry works with molecules and atoms um, you know, physics works with laws of nature, maths works with numbers, like any science has like a fun- fundamental substance or fundamental mm. asset that it works with. And in data science, it is data. And, the com- and then the fact that data complexity can vary, that's one of the characteristics of data. And, uh, you know, had it been just like a constant, like data is always this, this thing, then, you know, right. that's not as interesting. But here, the fact that it's varying and it, that affects this whole all the problems that we're solving. So there is some sort of underlying sap substance or ether that we need to work with and <laughs> that, that kind of like uh, describes this uh, field of science. So that's the pill number yeah, two. Yeah. And pill number three is that uh, there's an art to data science, right? Like um, all of these sciences, they all have an element of creativity or an exploration and art to them and data science is not no different. Uh, you need to know or establish ways to integrate data together to solve different problems. And it's not trivial. It's not linear. It requires some sort of human input. And so when we put all those three pillars together, the philosophical, the substance, and the artistic, that is sufficient uh, reasoning to separate data science into a field of its own. I believe so, yeah. And of course, then I guess if you're going to throw in one more, there's a social aspect, right? Uh, like what, what, uh, where, where do the data come from? Who's generating the data? How are they being used and how does it influence policy and decision-making and culture and all that kind of stuff? Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, they're, they're absolutely right. Yeah. You, you've nailed it. No, no, you nailed it. I just summed it up. So <laughs> that's really cool. So guys, if you're ever having a conversation and somebody's arguing that data science is not a separate field, it shouldn't be, there you go. There's some ammunition for those discussions. Um, the, ne- the other thing I wanted to chat to you about, uh, we got about 10 more minutes on this podcast, uh, teaching data science. So like you've been teaching data science at a university, you mentioned like your uh, current class is about, uh, or you know, the enrollments right now are about like 500 people in this program of data science. What have you noticed about, like any insights you can share with us about teaching data science? For instance, like one of the things that pops into my mind is, what are some of the common things that uh, students struggle with and how do they get over them in the course of learning data science? Uh, the biggest thing I see students struggle with is uh, uh, data intuition mm. uh, and algorithm yes. intuition. That's my favorite right? thing, favorite topic. <clears throat> You get like my I, I, when I give a talk about uh, give talks about this. Uh, there's a slide I include. It's a question that somebody put on uh, Stack Overflow, and the student's question was something along the lines of, "Okay, look, I know how to do PCA, uh, and I can cal- you know, like calculate eigenvalues and eigenvectors uh, like a machine, but I don't know why I'm doing it or when I should be doing it. Like even though I understand all of the math, I understand the algorithm perfectly." I don't understand why I need to be doing this and in which problems are suited for this. It's, I, I forget the exact wording, right? It's a little mm-hmm. bit more wordy than that, but that really like, that is what I see 
you get these students that come in as uh, first year undergraduates and they've taken AP statistics and AP calculus and AP computer science. Uh, and they just know all of these mechanical side of things. Uh, but then, you know, uh, you put them in a machine learning class where they get like the MNIST data set or something like that, which is like a really nice, clean, well-described test data set that lots of people use. And they'll, you know, throw different machine learning algorithms, you know, import scikit-learn in Python and throw some stuff at it, right? Um, but, like, that's all mechanical, right? They're not, like, they're not engaging with the ideas. And I feel like that's the value of, like, that, that universities still provide uh, over and above what you could just do from, you know, self-teaching online and through, like, online classes is this idea of a broad education about why are you using this algorithm? Why does this algorithm work? When does it fail? When does it not fail? What do you do if you have messy, noisy data? Um, and so the way I describe it is I'm trying to figure out how to teach uh, students automation resistant data science skills, mm-hmm. right? Like uh, there's this big concern that I hear among certain mm-hmm. data scientists mm-hmm. that like, you know, in five years, most of their job is going to be automated out of existence, right? Like you're just going to be able to import the, you know, uh, data cleaning package from Python and just, you know, turn your data through that and then import all data science models and, uh, you know, run uh, automatically through all of that and then you'll be done, right? Uh, and so, yeah, people really need to have the strong technical background. They need the math, they need the programming, but they also need to, what are those, what are those automation resistant skills and how do you teach those to undergraduates? Um, and so that's really what I've been focusing on in the last year. Wow, that's so cool. Don't leave, don't leave us hanging. What are those automation resisting data science <laughs> Okay. Um, all right. So let's see. Uh, I've talked a little bit about this idea of how do you integrate these different kinds of data sets. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, you talk about you've got uh, for any given user or account or whatever, you've got geographic data, textual data. Like what is the appropriate dimension across which to uh uh, integrate those data. You can integrate data temporally, right? So number of words they use per hour um, and from where they post and when and like how their social network looks over time. Or you can you know integrate geographically. Um, what kinds of posts do they write when they're in point A versus point B or whatever. Um, so that that's one that we've already talked a little bit about. The other one would be um, like how do you foster a, like a data first thinking? Mm. Um, so teaching students, how do you use data to solve a problem? Like you're going to create a company, you know, like an Uber, right? Uh, what data should you be collecting from day one in order to make your product better? Mm-hmm. Uh, and what data are, are you allowed to collect? What data should you collect? Um, what data should you not collect? Uh, and then uh, also just generally this idea of data literacy and intuition and creativity, mm-hmm. uh, which is, you know, we, we've talked about uh, also a couple of minutes ago. Mm-hmm. Um, data communication and visualization. So how do you actually use data to tell the story that you are trying to tell accurately without, you know, lying? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, And that's important, right? Because most practicing data scientists at the end of the day, they have to convince somebody else who is making the product and implementing their, their solutions. They have to convince them that the data are telling them something that is truthful and accurate. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so those four things of, of, like, how do you integrate different kinds of data? 
mm-hmm. how do you foster this data first thinking where you can use data to solve problems creatively and mm-hmm. cleverly, mm-hmm. even if you don't have access to the data yourself, even if your own team isn't generating the data, right? Like, mm-hmm. so going back to the problem I gave about Uber, which city does it launch in next? Well, what, you know, it's solving this last mile problem. So take a data set looking at where do people live, take another data set of where are public transportation stops, and then take another data set of where bars and restaurants located and using analyzing those data to try and figure out where the cities have the biggest distances between public transportation and where people live and where people play mm-hmm. basically, right? Hang out. Um, so how do you, how do you teach that? How do you teach that kind of data creativity? Uh, and then data literacy, intuition, and then uh, the visualization sides. So that's what we try and do. Mm-hmm. It's not easy <laughs> yeah. to try to figure out how to build classes around being creative with data. Uh, but yeah, uh, it's. I think we've got a pretty good, pretty good batch of undergraduates coming out of this program in the next year or two when they start to graduate. Uh, I think they're pretty clever. <laughs> That's fantastic! Fantastic. So, um, it almost seems like in the in the data science project lifecycle, where you've got like identify the problem, get and prepare the data, run the algorithm, uh, visualize the insights, and then present the insights in those five steps it almost seems like the only ones that can be automated are number two, get and prepare the data, and number three, like run the algorithms, build the models. Whereas, you know, preparing for the problem, like asking the right questions, finding out, you know, getting that domain knowledge and things like that. And then on the tail end where you have uh, visualizing, making sure that you're visualizing without including any uh, or uh, in, without including any false information or making it even like biased towards something and also the presentation part that the data scientists will still be required there. And a big part of that, right, this is a hot topic in the general field right now, right, is explainable models, Mm. right? Deep learning can do some pretty amazing thing, but like how do you interrogate Mm -hmm. what is happening under the hood in order to come to some human level understanding Mm -hmm. of why, uh, you know, some model is working better than another one, Mm -hmm. right? So that that still that that still requires the human level of intervention uh, in a number of ways, right? Because ultimately, at the end of the day, we don't want just a model that explains the world. We want a model where we understand what the different variables in that model represent, mm-hmm. right? Like it does no good to show somebody like F equals MA without telling them what F, M, and A stand for, mm-hmm. right? Uh, otherwise, you're just saying this number equals the product of two other numbers, and that's not helpful at all, right? Mm-hmm. Like F, M, and A are things that humans understand, like they have meaning. And so it's one thing to have a mathematical model that perfectly predicts the future, which is useful. But as humans, that's unsatisfying. We want to understand what do those variables represent and how can we interpret them and leverage that information to do something better. Yeah, yeah, totally, totally agree with you. Uh, Bradley, one more question before we wrap up. Uh, from all the things that you've seen, things that you've taught, the work that you've done, where do you think the world's going in terms of data science? And what should our listeners, and in fact, what should your uh, students that are graduating in the next couple of years, what, what kind of world are they going into? What's, uh, what's the world for a data scientist going to look like? I think the next stage, okay, I try and be optimistic. <laughs> <laughs> Like, I, you know, I'm, I'm of the opinion that, like, there's a lot of, uh, you know, it's the great power comes great responsibility. And, uh, you know, I think this is the future. 
holds a lot of good, positive possibility. Mm -hmm. uh, and so in order to get there, got to try and figure out how to teach the right things. And I think the future of data science is going to come into tools that allow people to visualize data that's important to them, that they want on demand, right? Like, um, I'll give an example from my field of neuroscience, right? There's a tool that my lab is currently working on trying to build, which says, okay, well, we have uh, these massive databases that tell us what parts of the brain, uh, what which genes are expressed, how strongly in which parts of the brain. So you have like 20 something thousand different genes uh, in, that are expressed in the brain and they're expressed differentially across the human brain. Uh, and we know from another set of millions of studies that have been conducted in neuroscience over the last hundred years, which parts of the brain are associated with what. So I point to any given part of the brain and I say, you know, there's an 87% chance that that's a visual part of the brain. Uh, you know, and here's another part of the brain. It's a 17% chance it's a language part of the brain, uh, Alzheimer's, uh, memory, attention, you know, whatever. Right. Um, and then you have another database that says, you know, here are all the connections between all the different brain areas. Like here's, you know, what's the probability that this brain area is connected to that brain area and that brain area is connected to that brain area with physical connections between like synapses, mm -hmm. uh, between neurons. Um, and these all exist in like these very different data sets and databases in data formats. And I think the power and the future of data science is going to be bringing together these disparate data sets that exist in different domains and integrating them in ways that are greater than the sum of the parts. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think that's going to be the case all over the place. Geographic and geospatial data, brain-based data, temporal data, textual data, you're going to start seeing people integrating and creating tools for integrating disparate data sets that allow for better, more informed data-driven decision-making uh, that will answer questions that are important to us, right? Like helping people cure disease, uh, reduce pollution, uh, you know, increase the quality of life, uh, and so on. Mm, fantastic. Fantastic. Thank you. That's a very bright future. And buddy, <laughs> thank you for coming on the show and sharing all these insights. It's been a really cool, cool chat. Very, very thoroughly enjoyed it so far. It's amazing. There's nothing a professor likes more than just bloviating. <laughs> so thank you for the outlet to do that. That's, that's awesome. Uh, Bradley, before I let you go, could you please uh, share with our listeners, where can they get in touch, contact you, follow you, uh, and find out more perhaps about the courses that you're teaching at UCSD and other work you're doing? Uh, yeah. So my uh, website is voiteclab.com, V-O-Y-T-E-K-L-A-B. Uh, I am also, my lab is on GitHub and we have a lot of the, uh, like the neuroscience related stuff that we do, uh, as well as we curate a number of like open data, open tool repositories, uh, resources, as well as I think my classes that I teach are maybe on there or discoverable through there. And that's github.com slash Voitech research, all one word, all lowercase. Uh, and then also on Twitter, uh, at Bradley Voitech, uh, all lowercase, all one word. Fantastic. And is it okay to connect with you on LinkedIn? Uh, yeah. And on, and on LinkedIn, I'm also just Bradley Voitech, same as my Twitter. Awesome. Uh, guys, make sure to get in touch and follow Brad. And one more thing, uh, I've got uh, one last question for you. Uh, what's a book that you can recommend to our listeners to help them in their careers or maybe even in their lives? <laughs> oh, wow. Um, can I give one actual useful book and one book that maybe gave, uh, gave me a, like an idea of like mm -hmm. proto data science thinking? Yeah. Uh, 
So sure. the useful book that I, I really like is um, uh, there is a book, uh, Data Science from Scratch, um, which I don't know if anybody's ever recommended that uh, to you before, I but that's from so, Joel yeah. Groose, uh, which is just, that's super handy. Uh, I use it to teach my undergraduates sometimes. Mm. It's, it's a very easy, uh, easy to use book. I've, and I've, then, I've met Joel Groose. He's, he's a really cool guy. And, yeah, is yeah. He, uh, yeah, I keep trying to get him to come down to San Diego and guest lecture. <laughs> yeah. I should reach out to him again. Yeah. Um, and the other one is, uh, honestly, the Asimov, uh, Isaac Asimov Foundation mm. Trilogy. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's this idea of psychohistorians, mm-hmm. uh, which are people that are uh, like integrating all of information about people and behavior and they're able to predict uh that the intergalactic empire or i guess intragalactic empire is about to collapse and in anticipation of that collapse they start to collect all of the world's information into the this encyclopedia so that they can reduce the severity of that collapse uh and so like that's like that's like looking back on having read that as a kid and i'm like yeah they're just collecting all of this data and they're able to predict the future uh, by collecting data about trillions and trillions of, you know, different people across the galaxy. I'm like, that's kind of this like proto modern, like data science viewpoint. Right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but it's all, uh, you know, in the book, it's, uh, all geared toward doing something good and useful. And I like that. Fantastic. So. Thanks for sharing. So data, <laughs> yeah, science, data science from scratch by Joel Gruss and the trilogy from Isaac Asimov. Okay. Well, once again, Bradley, thanks so much. It's been a huge pleasure having you on the show. And uh, I, you know, I'll be in San Diego looking forward to catching up in person. Definitely, yeah, definitely very excited too. about that. Please. Let me know when you're in town. For Thank sure. you for having me on. I appreciate it. It's been fun. So there you have it. That was Bradley Wojtek, Associate Professor at UC San Diego and one of the first data scientists at uber i hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as i did and personally for me the most valuable takeaway were probably those four points that bradley shared about how you can argue for data science to be recognized as a separate field i think a lot of us have these conversations quite often and sometimes it's hard to articulate why data science is actually a science and should be recognized equally to physics or mathematics and Uh, chemistry and i'm glad that we went into this conversation with somebody with so much experience and knowledge in the space such as bradley on this podcast and i hope that it was helpful for you as well and on that note you can find all of the materials that we talked about on this episode in the show notes which are at www.superdatascience.com 253 that's superdatascience.com 253 There you'll find a transcript for this episode, any materials we mentioned, plus all of the social links to Bradley's profiles. So make sure to follow him there, follow his career and see what other new exciting things he gets up to along the way. And if you enjoyed this episode, make sure to spread the love, send it to somebody who you think might enjoy it as well and might learn from the things that Bradley had to share from his exciting career journey. And on that note, thank you so much for being here. Can't wait to see you back here next time. And until then, happy analyzing.